Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. It's uh, exciting to have uh, a really special episode. We've been waiting a long time to have these guests, and so I'm going to let them introduce themselves and just tell us a little bit about, about yourselves. I'm Cynthia Winward. Uh, love your guys' podcast. I have been listening since, I think you guys started with Book of Mormon. Is, was that the first year that you guys started? Yeah. yeah. We started so partway I, through the New Testament, like in oh, April of the New Testament. Oh, yeah, okay. We did start well, then, the New Testament. I've been listening since the beginning. So whenever that was, it's been a long time, folks. It's been a long time. Uh, but I'm Cynthia. I live in Provo, Utah, although uh, I'm a California girl, but I came here to go to BYU and like so many sad souls never left. So <laughs> I'm still in Utah, even though I don't know if I'm ever going to claim Utah as my home, but I should at this point, I should. Uh, I'm a lifelong member of the church. Uh, my mom converted to the church uh, in Mexico. My dad joined or he he was a lifelong member and had pioneer ancestry. So I feel like I have pioneers on both sides and in different ways in my, in my family. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm here in Provo living the dream. I'm married. I have three kids that are now grown. Yay. Uh, so looking forward to the next phase of life as an empty nester. So that's good. I'm curious, what did you study at BYU? I studied business management and finance. So that seems like a whole nother life, Derek, because, and I mean, I have run my own business. Uh, so I did use my finance and stuff. Uh, I had an embroidery business online for many years. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what brought me here to Utah was getting a degree in business management. Wonderful. And that's Cynthia. And uh, Susan, would you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Susan Hinckley. And uh, Cynthia says that she's living the dream, but I would say that actually I am living the dream. I am a snowbird. I live half the year in Arizona and the other half in Minnesota. Um, grew up in Salt Lake City, but we raised our family um, all over the country. We moved a lot. And so I've had a lot of different experiences, life experiences and church experiences. And uh, so good and bad on, on all sides. But um, I have found that there are good and bad things about everywhere that we've lived. And that also includes in life and the church. So I have a lot of experience that I'm sitting on. I have been a lifelong member. I have everything. Uh, polygamy, pioneers, all of it uh, on my side of my ancestry. And then on my married side, uh, I'm a Hinckley, of course. So I've got all kinds of uh, church royalty uh, going on that side with Richards and Hinckley's. And so anyway, definitely a Mormon life that has gone on here and um, still active, still doing it. Um, it's been a little discombobulated since uh the pandemic, as I think it has for a lot of people. So we're not quite back in the groove yet. And I got released from my calling during that time. So that's had an impact. But uh, anyway, still hanging in there and uh, still in conversation with people on the entire spectrum of activity in the church. And so I'm really interested in people's journeys and in kind of expanding the space and the conversation for the members, um, wherever they may be on that spectrum. Uh, I've been a working artist for many years and a writer. I uh, graduated the University of Utah 
and I have three adult daughters. I think it's hilarious that Cynthia says her kids are grown up and the youngest is uh, 18. That's grown, <laughs> Good Susan. luck with that, Cynthia. I'm claiming Good it. luck with that. I'm tired. Talk, tell my 35-year-old, would you please? <laughs> wow. I'm curious about something that I had never thought about. It's the, the snowbird piece. Yeah. And it has to do with, so do you attend two different wards half the year? Do you have relationships with two different bishops, two different callings? Like, how does that uh, impact you because you can well, get in trouble with two bishops or you can correct have... or no bishops when <laughs> they don't really know where you yeah. are Derek see no one really knows on any given Sunday are they here are they there it's really part of the beautiful plan but we started this um, during the pandemic so our Minnesota ward we're not really so much on there radar yet. We just okay. kind of show up there, but they don't really know who we are yet. Um, so anyway, that that's a great question. And I too will watch with interest as that relationship unfolds. Very nice. And if you guys don't already recognize them by name, uh, both Susan and Cynthia are the hosts of the At Last She Said It podcast. Uh, you guys have been on for at least a couple of years now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. We yeah, started exactly years. when lockdown started, basically, oh, like the okay. next week. Mm. Yeah. So. And I suspect that may have had something to do with, uh, well, who knows? I mean, if it started that quickly, I don't know how much of a catalyst, uh, you know, the lockdown was. But I do want to talk about your uh, origins a little bit and talk about what exactly, where exactly the inception happened for At Last She Said It, uh, what kind of inspired the uh, idea and what ultimately led to you guys uh more or less publicizing your conversations. Well, we well, were not, um, it, it wasn't, the pandemic was not a catalyst. It, it, it gave us a little more time because like I wasn't going to work. And so I was at home and we could put even more time uh, into the podcast, but we probably talked about it at, at least six to eight months, if not For longer sure. yeah. um, in, in planning this project and how we wanted it to look. Uh, so yeah, it just kind of was really interesting that we just happened to start downloading our episodes the week that everything got shut down. Cynthia and I had both been working for several years as moderators in um, a large online group for people who are experiencing some kind of crisis in relation to the church. I'm not going to say everybody's there with a faith crisis, but everybody's there with something, right? Something kicks them into this group. Right. And so we had been working um, with, with this group for several years. And so we had a lot of back conversations going all the time and about life, family, you know, church stuff, whatever was going on in the group, whatever people were talking about. And so uh, about the end of every conversation, we would say, somebody should do a podcast about that. And mm -hmm. eventually we just decided to do the podcast. Okay. We decided to do it only being experts in having sat in the pews for, I think we added our ages up. I mean, it, what is it? Are we a hundred? Like a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we're a hundred years old. We're like more than a hundred years old. That's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Yeah. So that's our so, only expertise guys. Is well, that, and besides yeah. that, you know, we'd been eavesdropping on the conversations of like 3000 people for several years at that point. So we knew that we weren't the only ones experiencing the things that we were experiencing and thinking what we were thinking. So we figured it was time someone started to say it out loud. For one thing, to make other members aware, maybe who might not be aware of who all is in the room with them and what they're thinking about, but also because we figured it was time to make space for 
people who were having those experiences and had been largely silenced, had not been feeling like they had a space to talk about them. And so we wanted to make that space for ourselves, but also in hopes that other people would step into the space. And that's exactly what's happened. That's kind of what I uh, want to begin with further is, um, you know, I was immediately curious about the name of the show and you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but uh, something that you, I think you articulated on like your first episode, but you said something along the lines of, and this was really relatable to me, being in a Sunday school lesson or a Relief Society lesson, or just being in some church space, a topic coming up, and then you having perhaps strong feelings about something, but not feeling okay to share those. And basically, uh, when you guys started your show, it was more or less this opportunity to finally say what you either should have or really wanted to say in that particular space. Uh, hence the at last you said it name. And uh, I found that extremely relatable. But I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that particular experience, because that is something we don't actually talk a lot about is uh, being in that those particularly what can be awkward situations of being in the middle of these topics, wanting to be vulnerable in ways that, you know, we're not traditionally feeling like we have permission to be. And then at last having that permission or giving ourselves that permission to be authentic. So kind of a lot in there, but I was wondering if you wanted to say a little bit more about that experience, more about that feeling. Cynthia and I have kind of different experiences around this because we have had different, a different personal relationship with the church really um, throughout our lives. So I've been a misfit Mormon literally from second one. So when you talk about a Sunday school class where I've been sitting there thinking, really, that's pretty much every Sunday school class that I've ever been in my whole life. But Cynthia did not have that experience so right. much. That's that's kind of a, a newer thing for her. And so I like that we bring both things to the conversation, right? Cynthia has a real grip on what it feels like to be the person who is sitting in Sunday school, not really questioning anything so much that's being said. Um, right. And then, you know now being the person who is, and I'm the person who's just kind of always done that, but I've hung in. Right. And I think that that is also a valuable component to our conversation. I'm still here. So, I mean, there's something to that, right? I want to be here for some reason. So um, a lot of this is unpacking and exploring both of our own experiences um, and the ways that those have differed and the ways that they intersect and the fact that we're both still trying to engage. Right. I know Susan describes herself uh, as having had a silence crisis and you can say more about that if you want, Susan. I never had that. I, I, I never had a faith crisis, but I felt like I've been on a faith journey. I know that's such like a woo woo thing to say this faith journey, but you know, it's kind of true uh, that sometimes things work until they don't. And so for me, church worked really well. I checked all the boxes as far as like husband and kids and college graduate, but I was a stay-at-home mom. Like I was doing all the right things. And then when I turned 40, things just started getting really, really hard. Uh, first, by then I had served in enough presidencies as a woman that I kind of saw how the sausage was made behind the scenes and it didn't involve a lot of women's input in it. And so I started getting a lot of questions. Uh, I started forming questions about like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And seeing um, 
men in leadership abuse, like verbally and emotionally abuse women uh, in presidencies I had served with. And then also, thankfully, you know, several men who were amazing leaders, but their hands were tied with the system. There was only so much that they could do. But then on the familial side, you know, everyone has a, a messy family, right? Uh, even if you check all the boxes, families are just messy. And so my family started getting really messy the year I turned 40. And I felt like the rug had just been pulled out from under me. And so I had to, you know, I'm trying to work with priesthood leaders. And I realized in that moment, oh, they're really able to identify and help my straight, white, cisgendered husband. Like the church works really, really well for him. And then here I am, a woman in the room, and they have no idea what to do with me. They can't relate to me. They can't relate to the experiences that I've had, the choices I've made in my life. And so I found them more or less being able to minister to my husband really, really well. And I was kind of left out in the cold. And I thought, oh, okay. I mean, maybe I had been really naive. I hadn't really ever experienced things in my life that required me to be like in the bishop's office a lot. And then all of a sudden I was, and I was like, oh gosh, this is, this is not working for women. And, and I know some women, it, it works well and maybe it always does. I wasn't that woman. And that's when things really started to fall apart for me. And I started to see women deserve a larger seat at the table. And, and as long as 50% are making decisions on behalf of the husband, the 100%, we're never going to be 100%. And I very much feel like that as the 50, you know, as 50% of the church, if not more, I, I don't know where the stats are with, with women to men in the church. Um, but I very much feel like people are making decisions for me that don't represent me. And that's hard. And that was really hard to kind of admit to myself as a middle-aged woman who's given my life to this church in every way possible to say, oh gosh, this system is actually quite broken. And so we decided to start talking about that in the ways that it is broken and also the ways that it is beautiful and the way those, it's never all black or white, right? There's so much in between. The church has been amazingly wonderful for me. I give it credit for so, so much in my life and I want us to be better. And this is where our experiences really do intersect because for me, you know, as always um, an uncomfortable member of the church in many ways, but I had a great life. I feel like the church gave me a really great template for building a life. And I loved the life and the family that I had built. And then, you know, you get to a certain age and your life experience starts to get in the way. And no matter how much you pretend that, you know, you've checked all the boxes. So everything is going to look a certain way. It just doesn't at some point. You get these adult children, they're living their lives, doing their thing. And so, you know, when when I found myself with three adult daughters who had divorces, you know, abuse in the relationship, there were all the all this real life going on in our family. And my daughters left the church, which was at the time unfathomable for me. It just it was sort of like it tore the universe for me. I couldn't make sense of it. And on the other hand, knowing them and the strong and amazing women that they are, I would not want them to stay. And so trying to reconcile that in myself, um, that here I had built my life in this place that actually was not a healthy or good place for my own daughters. 
um, or that they didn't belong there. And that was not the ideal place for them to build their lives. I really had some things to reckon with there about the women's experience in the church and, and how well it really helps people grapple with what's going on in their very real lives. And I just feel like we're not that good at that as a church. And so I wanted to well, start talking about that and and hope that other women could bring their real lives also. And we could dump all the pieces out on the table together and figure out, you know, how can we reconcile what this picture looks like with the picture on the puzzle box? I feel like there's a real disparity there. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about something. Part of it is that I'm a convert and part of it is that I don't have any Latter-day Saint women in my life. Like I don't have an LDS mom or a wife or daughter right, or any of these other yeah. things. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know what women say to each other behind the scenes. A and, lot. <laughs> and do you think that more women in the church are saying and thinking the, the same things you are? They just don't say it out loud? Or to what extent is, yeah, tell me like, what is it like there? So it's been astonishing. It's been astonishing to witness really the power of putting experiences into words. And as Mm -hmm. a writer and as an artist, I have always sort of had an intellectual understanding of that, but I didn't have the kind of real life understanding of it that this project has given me. Um, LDS women have seen and experienced and, you know, felt and thought of a whole world of things that they have not been acknowledging out loud, even to each other. Sometimes we have women write to us all the time. Absolutely. And say, there is no one in my life. There is not one person in my life that I can say these things to. So like, what does that say about our culture as a body of Christ, right? If you're living among these people and even in your own family where you cannot share your real feelings or experiences, and both of you might really you know, understand that in different ways from the way that I'm, you know, that it's been my experience, but I just, I'm blown away again and again by the power of Cynthia and um, me opening our mouths. And then the women just like flooding in to that space. It's been incredible to witness. Uh, The space was there. We stepped into it. Um, We just lucked into it somehow, but the space definitely already existed for these conversations. Just no one was having them. Wow. I, I've, I've said many times that it just takes one person. One person's descent can change the whole room. It's like yes. emperor's new clothes. Absolutely. Like just one person says it and then everyone already is thinking it. And just one person saying it allows everyone else to, to say what's not being said. We, we have women who write us and they, I mean, we've probably had this message sent to us a thousand times where they say, I thought I was going crazy. And now I realize I'm not. You're feeling this too. I mean, what a horrible feeling to think that it's me, it's me, it's me. And then finally, when someone else opens your mouth, you're like, thank the heavens, it's not me. I'm not crazy. Other women are feeling this too. Other women are frustrated with the structure. Other women hope for change. Other women don't dare say out loud because they would lose you know, their privilege maybe in their ward if they say something. I, I have friends who... Husbands have served as, you know, bishops and state presidents, and then they have to protect that relationship too. I mean, there are just so many layers where women feel like, I can't say this because this isn't what a bishop's wife looks like, 
or, or a, a mother, president's you know, wife. someone who's trying to raise children in the church. Yeah. That just complicates things. It right. complicates it. Right. We're, if we're told as women, this is your highest and noblest calling is to be a mother. I mean, the way I try to get people to understand this is my husband's an accountant, right? So sometimes we show up at parties and if we're all LDS at the party, we end up talking sometimes about women's issues. And I say, okay, how many, I said, it's like me telling every man in this room, you have to be a CPA like my husband. You're going to be an auditor for the rest of your life, or at least the next 30 years, this is what you're going to do. And then that's when men look at me and they go, oh my gosh, I get it. And I'm like, that's what we do to women is we tell them, this is what you're going to be. Oh, and by the way, this is the only holy calling to be. And if you don't like it, well, then you need to whatever, repent, pray harder, I mean, it's just, it's a lot. It is so much to dump on LDS women that how do you, when it's wrapped up in your righteousness and even your salvation, how dare you, how, how could you say that out loud that maybe motherhood is a disappointment or that you just want to go get a job, you know, even though you were taught your whole life and, and Susan and I are, are a little bit older than you guys, but boy, it was shoved down our throats that selfish women work outside the home. Oh, I mean, we, we grew up in the era of President Benson and his talk to the mothers in Zion. And that's what we were taught was, yeah, that's was selfish. Experience. That was the word used over and over. I've gone back and looked at so many of those talks and that's the word that stands out over and over. Selfish, selfish, selfish. So do you think we bury maybe sometimes our true needs, desires, wants, and thoughts deep, deep, deep? Oh, yeah. And then sometimes when you turn 40, then it just starts gushing out and you realize not only do I, not only can't I stop it, I don't want to stop it. I'm going to say it all now at last out loud. Well, wait till you turn 50, Cynthia. That's all I have to say to you <laughs> oh, <wow>. about that. <laughs> but it starts so young. We, we get... Um, well, first of all, our listener span, you know, that we've identified that we actively interact with seems to range from like the early 20s through women in their 70s that these are the women that we're in conversation with. So it's a pretty broad spectrum of uh, the Latter-day Saint women's experience. And we hear from women all the time who say, I was really interested in archaeology. But instead, you know, I decided to get a degree in early childhood education because I figured that would be a better job for a mother. And so like this impacts the trajectory of women's entire lives. Yes, they go to college, but they don't feel at liberty to study what they're interested in, what they think they might be good at, you know, or what they might want to do for the rest of their lives, because having children and being married is job one. And mm -hmm. that's the job that has been focused on um, in their upbringing. And so I, you know, I, it's not like that's a revolutionary kind of concept. It's not like we don't all see it going on. It's the water that we've all been swimming in all the time. Right. But I didn't really understand how there was zero room for self-actualization for the women in this church. There just has not been space for that. And then by the time you're 50, I mean, yeah, it's great. Maybe your kids are raised and you can go do stuff, but let's be honest with each other. You cannot do the same things at 50. Your opportunities are not the same as they would have been at 25. They're just not. Uh, you're not, you're not going to have that career 
that you might have had. And so it has a profound impact on the trajectory of women's lives. And I think Cynthia uh, and I would both tell you, we love our children, we love our families, and we love our lives. But, you know, I might have made some different decisions. Hands down. I might have made some different decisions. Would you care to talk a little bit more about the ways in which uh, these differences exist and how the church deals with men versus women to the point where, I, well, okay, let me try this again. This <laughs> I think the fact that it's hard to word the question, uh, I mean, it's part of the answer to the question. <laughs> yeah, but still, like, I know the question I want to a- ask, but at the same time, I want to make sure I don't encourage an answer that I don't know. Lead the witness. Mm -hmm. Lead the witness. Yeah, you know, just. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. So let me try. Let me try to do it this way. Why do you think that gap exists? Like, obviously, I think everybody here would agree that there is a disparity among the genders. But why does that gap persist despite the fact that women have been feeling this way for such a long time? I think there are several reasons that come to mind immediately about that. And the first is there's a power dynamic. I think at church, I mean, men have the power. They have the power to release me from my calling. They have the power to take away my temple recommend. They, I don't have that kind of power. And in, in every situation, women can be overridden by men at church. So that's really difficult to always, always be the underdog. Um, I think it's also difficult because because the church emphasizes these really separate gender roles uh, for men and women. Women are the nurturers and men are the providers. You know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because they emphasize these very different roles. We kind of fill those roles and then we're unable to kind of understand each other when things get really difficult. Uh, I mean, the way that women are taught about sexuality in young women's is different than the way young men are taught. And, and then that comes into play when maybe you're in a bishop's office. I mean, I've had multiple, multiple friends who had to go, girlfriends who've had to go through the repentance process at church. And the bishop would say things like, well, you need to look at it from this way. You know, if, if I saw you in that swimsuit, I would be thinking this. And then all of a sudden, the you know, the room turns creepy because it's like, oh, he's putting himself, you know, in this situation. He's putting himself in this, you know, story where it's like he's trying to get me to understand why what I did was wrong based upon, you know, him as a male sexually, how he would see the situation. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's just it, it's so wrong. And so. Like if if it was a Relief Society president who was helping a woman um, through maybe some sexual sins, like that would be my, I don't know. I think that's going to happen eventually just for legal reasons. I don't see how we can continue to put a man and a woman behind closed doors um, and talk about sexual things and, and have him uh, be the one to kind of tell her this is what you need to do to go through the repentance process. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And I don't maybe want to, I didn't think we'd end up talking about sexuality, but um, I would, I would say that's a really, really big one for women is to be behind closed doors and have someone ask them about their underwear, 
you know, for your Temple Recommend interview. I mean, it's just wrong on so many levels. So those are the two things I can I can think of right that right there is the the power dynamic is very real. So women are always very careful about what we say. Um, I, I had a bishop told me after I voiced to him several times, like we need to have more lessons on this, 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 and this. And he was like, well, Cynthia, some people come to church to play softball and you want to play hardball. And guess what? He's the bishop. I wasn't. So he got his way. He gets to decide what the tone of the ward is in our lessons and such. And I wasn't. So that power dynamic is really difficult. And I know we have a lot of men even who will write Susan and I and say, well, it's really only a few men who are in charge. Like most men aren't in charge. There are only maybe two or three at the top of the ward or something. And I'm like, but you see yourself represented, maybe not in every way, but you do see a male getting up every Sunday, conducting sacrament meeting. A male is extending the callings. A male, I mean, it's it's ludicrous to think that um, when men complain to us about how bad they have it, I'm like, oh, honey, you need to get in line get a number and go to the very back of the line because you cannot compare your experience as a male in the church to my experience simply because there are only two or three men in charge of each ward. Is that, is that, you can push back on that boys if you want to, but as a a woman, that's kind of, that's where I come down on it. Well, I would say that it's even more deeply ingrained than that, because yes, a woman walks into a church meeting and sees the whole front of the chapel, you know, dominated by men and hears men's voices. But even in her personal prayers, a woman is not, doesn't see herself represented. Sure. Even in her personal prayers, there is that power differential and, and everything in the church, and I mean everything from the top down, comes to us through a male lens. The theology that the church is built on um, are, you know, the experiences of the founder of the church. All of this is coming to us through the male experience, not the female experience. We read the scriptures through that lens. The men who wrote the scriptures recorded them through that lens. There just is no other lens. In the church, so everything starts there, um, and then there, and then when you get down to the brass tacks experience of a woman, there literally is nowhere in the church where a woman is not supervised. A woman's in the church building alone, practicing the organ, still has a man there because it's required in most, if not all wards, all wards I've ever been in. A woman's not allowed to be in the building alone, and and I know that there are you know benevolent reasons for that. I understand that the intentions may be good, but the bottom line experience is the same. Uh, anything that a woman is ever saying in a church context, she is saying, knowing full well that it will be overheard and would have to be approved by men. And so that includes when you're in a Relief Society presidency meeting, anything. No woman has a space in the church where she can speak without the idea that whatever she's saying would have to be okay, even with men who are not directly in the room. And Cynthia and I both had experiences where we did speak up in our callings and we were released from our callings. Yes. That is a real thing. If they don't like what you're saying, or even you know, worse, if they don't like how you're saying it, mm. you're out. And uh, so that's, that happens. 
Uh, women are walking on eggshells in a lot of ways. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of that. So much of how everything works in the church is through your tone. Like if you you got it. If you say things in a certain tone, it could be very very subversive, but if the tone passes the their defenses, then they don't right. They may not right. right do the same thing. And I think about this with the scriptures a lot because I try to be very responsible with um our scriptures which are created in a patriarchal culture and preserved and written down most likely by men in in most cases but i st- but i still want to like help uh empower women as much as i can like just a few months ago when i gave a lesson on romans 16 i talked about phoebe and i named that she was a deacon i named that she was entrusted and recommended by paul to read and deliver the letter to the Romans. I named that she was not mentioned as anyone's wife or anyone's mm. daughter or anyone's mother. She Thank was you. herself, right? She may have been some of these other things, but that was not important. So every time I can, and I'm in a funny spot, like I don't know what to do because, and this isn't me trying to brag, but in many cases, I might be more feminist than many of the women in the room. I and believe I don't, that. Well, we should talk about that. Yeah. And I don't know what to do about that because I don't want to speak for women and I don't want to speak sure. over women. And every woman's experience is valid, right? If if it's if the church is working for her, I'm not going to tell her it's not. If she doesn't want the priesthood, I'm not going to tell her she has to have it. But my view is that the priesthood I'm not asking women if they want the priesthood. I'm asking women if they want a priesthood ban on all women, mm. which is different. Mm-hmm. Right? I I think that um and it's not just priesthood it's about leadership it's about decision making like everything i think should be gender neutral in the church Mm. um except if it's by consent and people want to have gender roles i'm I'm not abolishing all gender but everything needs to be chosen right if people want to be a mother fine if people don't fine and this is coming from the queer community of course i have to derail and talk about the queer community Like, I just don't get a lot of I don't get a lot of this gender mess. Like, if you've got two men who are raising kids, they have to decide who's going to do what, who's going to stay home with the kids, who's going to whatever. Same thing with two women raising kids or two women deciding if they're going to have kids. You don't automatically decide. By gender, because you can't anymore. Mm. So, like, I don't understand why all these things are assigned by gender. Everything should be assigned by the spirit and by the willingness and the capability and sure and and the right. Like that makes no sense that we're running on half of our talent in the church. Like we would be so much better um, with representation, with representation of Heavenly Mother, with um, more empowered women, and it's just. I did. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I don't know what to say to the, <laughs> we to the feel women this in the deeply. church. Like, cause I want to, I want to like, yeah, maybe the women, maybe the mothers are okay, but what about their daughters? Mm-hmm. Like, their daughters might not be okay. And you can't be what you can't see according to, right. I can't remember who said that, but I just don't know what to do about all these things. One of the really big aha moments for us, and it came in season one, it came early in this project, and it was a terrifying realization, was that the degree to which women 
are complicit in their own marginalization in the church. And when Mm -hmm. we really could start to see this, we were really afraid to name it, first of all, even with each other. And then we got out there and then we're like, we cannot talk about this on an episode. But as we've gone on, you know, we have, have, we've talked about it, but it's just absolutely true. Um, We get letters from bishops who say, you know, here are the specific things that I'm trying to do in my ward and I'm getting pushback on it. And the pushback is from women. A lot of the pushback is from women. And so we had to really step back and try to grapple with the idea that for some reason, women are doubling down on all of it. And we didn't have to think that long about it before we sort of figured out what was going on. And when you have women who have sacrificed a lot for this, who have built their lives on it, right? Of course, they're going to defend the status quo because to not do that calls into question all of these decisions that she's made since she was, you know, 12 years old. Uh, if If you call into question the very foundations that she's built her life on, then she starts to think, well, why didn't I study geology? I mean, what, what have I done? Uh, so I understand why women are heavily invested in defending uh, the gender roles in the church as presently constituted, but it does represent a very real hurdle for forward progress on a local level and, you know, a wider institutional level. Mm-hmm. Can you guys talk? A l- I actually missed this episode uh, where you guys talked about women being complicit in their own marginalization. Did you discuss any ideas about that hurdle? We haven't done an episode about it. We have just dared to let the idea come up in our conversations. Mm -hmm. We dip our toe in that. We dip our toe in it. And we talked about, we did a a Faith Again fireside in Salt Lake City uh, in May where we did talk about it. But I mean, that was a much smaller audience. So, I mean, I guess it's out there now. It's out there now, Cynthia. <laughs> sort of. Sort yeah. of. Yeah, yeah I, would right. love to, I would love to hear it if the subject comes up again, because this is definitely something very real that a lot of, I mean, I think every marginalized community deals with it to some extent mm-hmm. where we have to talk about the members of our community that are often complicit in our very marginalization. And I can't imagine with a population as large as, you know, women in the church um, and, you know, to go back to this whole numbers thing, you know, a significant portion of the active membership of the church is women. Like I think in places like Utah, the ratio is like as high as seven to one in some areas of temple recommend holding women to men. Mm. And uh, when you have Mm. a significant portion of that population that is, you know, for lack of a better word, fine with the way things are, that can certainly, um, you know, to put it politely, start some conversations or right. halt some conversations. So I guess this is just my polite request for if that episode ever does come out, just make a big deal of it. Cause we'll I would love to hear that conversation. <laughs> maybe we'll do it. Maybe that's well, our, maybe that's our, uh, hundredth yeah. episode, Cynthia. Yeah, we're just about to get our hundredth episode. So say, this was ninety seven so, that y'all just released. Yeah, yeah, we have a few more in the can right now, but yeah, we're going to be releasing our hundredth soon. Can we just let women off the pedestal and let them be real women? And so I, I see this in the church within our culture, and let's admit it, we have a culture in our church. I see it in like my familial culture, being Latina, and so it's it's really interesting to see it like you were saying, James, from, from different marginalized points of view and go, oh, okay, this is just what humans do. 
this this is like a human problem. We all kind of put people in boxes and we expect them to stay there. And then when you start realizing, oh, that box is really tight and confining and people want to break out of it. That's when, like Susan was saying, we become complicit in our own marginalization because it's like, we've always done this and we've done it this way for a reason. And why do you have to come along making trouble? Women are happy. Most women are happy. I mean, we Susan and I just did an episode uh, where we talked about Elder Bednar and what he said recently at the National Press Club, you know, that women will never um, get the priesthood or will never be an apostle because... Um, well, I have the exact quote. We follow the pattern. Right here. Yeah, he said, we follow the pattern of the ancient church. The pattern anciently, anciently was that the apostles were men. So we ended up having an entire episode about that actually just released because uh, we talked about, okay, well, what is that pattern? But what was interesting about that was that we went back and looked at President Hinckley's answer when President Hinckley was quite often asked that question as well about women in the church. And he would say, he said something different than Elder Bednar. Elder Bednar was looking backwards, saying, well, this is why we do it. And President Hinckley was looking forward, saying, well, it would take a revelation. And even just saying that to women, not even Susan and I aren't even saying, you know, we want to be ordained and, and we demand this. Like, we're just even posing the question saying, huh, if President Hinckley said this would take a revelation, what could that mean? would be a different role for women in the church going forward someday, who knows when. And, and just that is kind of dangerous. Like if, if we pose every once in a while, we dip our toe and in, in, into those waters and kind of talk about what could be different if women were in charge, women, they cut straight to the chase and they say to us, so what you want to, you want a female prophet? Is that what That's you where want? It always goes. That's where it goes. It, it goes straight to there every single time. Well, and, I and do. I, I want to be no I want like I would be happy to have twelve women apostles, right? Uh-huh. We've had it. We've had over a cent- century of all men. Like, why right. can't we have a like two centuries of all women? Like, right. I'm fine with that. Like, I. Th- but they're the they're not asking the question the same way you are, Derek. Right, right. Like, they're not asking it as like this would be a celebration. They're saying it as in like, how dare you, feminist radical. I don't know. Do you, you probably have more to say about that, Susan. Well, my problem with that question is that it dismisses the idea that there is anything between where women are in the church right now yes. and a female prophet. And as I look at it, there is this huge spectrum of things between here and there. There are things that we could do and that we mm-hmm. could change mm-hmm. without ever touching any of our foundational doctrines, right? There are the changes that could happen and we could all still get along. We could all still stay in this car together. Um, and so I, I hate that that question is really just a shutdown question in my mind. A That's a way to stop the conversation. Um, and, and so that really bothers me. I want to say one thing also about... Um, President Hinckley's statement that it would take a revelation. The earlier part of that quote that we didn't talk about on that episode, but probably should have is a little more problematic. And what he says is there's no demand for it, right? The women are happy. They don't want it. Women in the church don't want it. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with President Hinckley saying that, but also where I'm able to give him a lot of grace for that is that women do not talk about it. 
I can't think of any more taboo topic in the church for a woman than agitating for priesthood ordination. I mean, that is hands down. You just cannot talk about it. You cannot even talk about it with your friends. You can't talk about it with your spouse. You can't talk about that with anybody. LDS women do not talk about that. And so I don't blame President Hinckley for maybe being under the impression that women are completely happy with the status quo. We have given that impression. Well, my question there is, should I be talking about it more? I mean, I talk about it (laughs) from time to time in my ward when I'm teaching uh, yes. When I'm giving questions, like maybe I'm free to in a way that women aren't free to. Yeah, talk absolutely. To. Absolutely. Because I have Nailed nothing it. to lose. I have nothing to lose. Exactly. What more can they do to me? Like they can't. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen to me. Um, And if it does, it's because I'm in trouble for so many other reasons, too. So, yeah, I'm going to just and I talk about it. I, I listed. Hmm. The seven the seven women prophets we had in the Bible. We've have a woman apostle. We have a woman deacon. We have Junia in Romans 16, right? Like mm-hmm. I name these in Sunday school. I don't, I don't like, I do it in a way that's very subversive and my tone is perfect, right? right because right. if I come out, yes. like if I, if I had the personality of someone else, they would get shut down, but no one has shut down because all I'm saying is, oh, look, Miriam is literally a neviah in the Hebrew, a woman prophet. And no, and and I'm like, I just, I just leave that there. And I, I get people to think about this and I, I would love to, to see women's ordination, but um, the irony is I have had experiences in a denomination with women's ordination. Um, I come from the Lutheran and Episcopal church backgrounds with, which both had women's ordination my entire life. Holy envy. And I can say, yes, there's holy envy, but I can also say women's ordination by itself doesn't fix everything. Mm, sure. Because you Absolutely. need to fix, you need to repent top to bottom about how you make decisions, how you oh, distribute yeah. power, right. how you, whatever. Because if you just give a few people, a, a few women, a token ordination and then mm-hmm. say, and just wipe your hands and say, look, we did it. Like we haven't done even the first step of what needs to be done in this church. And for, we've already seen that happen in the church you know, with the ordination of black folks. Like as soon as the priesthood ban was lifted, Uh, how long did it take us before we finally got black general authorities? Like we just barely got our first uh, American general authority just a couple of years ago. So like, I totally agree with what Derek is saying. Like I'm all for the ordination of women, but that only begins to address a much more insidious problem that we have with just how we view women so right and it's if it's if they're just gonna um ordain a few token women who are already complicit in the system that's not enough right And this is where i say there's this huge spectrum of things that we could be doing there are all these other things that need to happen so ordination is you know one thing on the list that might help change things. But think of how many callings there are in the church that do not require specific keys. There are so many. There are very few callings in the Mm -hmm. church actually that do require specific keys. Mm -hmm. The majority of them do not. And so uh, therefore there is no, I see no reason that women could not begin to fill those roles, which would really change the appearance of the whole structure. And that's where, you know, that's where it's going to have to start. It's going to have to start with members getting used to seeing women in places where they're not used to seeing them. 
Derek, I say you keep speaking up, please, because absolutely you have nothing. Well, and this is a, a generalized statement, and then I'll backtrack. You have nothing to gain by women being ordained. So you can say that out loud and without it sounding like, selfish or, right, or harsh or abrasive or 100%. Right. right. 100%. I mean, I wear a rainbow pin at church. Everybody knows I'm a straight cisgendered woman, but I can be an ally for queer folk and you can be an ally for women. Like, I just think we all can lift where we stand in so many different ways that just kind of lets a little bit of fresh air in the room and lets people kind of go, oh, Derek is speaking about women's issues. I wonder, maybe there's something here as opposed to a power hungry woman, which is how we get labeled. Which is how we would get seen. When we talk about it. Yeah, it's just an invitation for people to think about things that they are not used to thinking about. We see all of these things over and over every week. And so we're blind to them, right? I think most people are completely blind to the fact that a young girl walks into sacrament meeting and doesn't see herself represented in any kind of meaningful role. Uh, I think most people just don't even realize that. So when you speak up about something like that, it's an invitation for people to step back and consider something that they haven't before. And one of the things that we find again and again is that once people see things like this, they can't really stop seeing them. So it is a tool that actually does help. It's a yes. helpful tool. Yeah, it's it's so it's it's uh it's tough to 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 like not speak over women and not try to put women in their place if I'm because part of it is they've been socialized by this entire system and many of them have are trying to survive in the system and they're surviving by cooperating. Yes. And I'm not subject to those same things. So I have to be very careful about how I, how I, how I navigate it. Right. Like Mm. I remember during the, um, you know what it's, all these oh here's my other thing is i'm i claim to be a real theologian and then in the church instead of theology we have these little cutesy analogies or uh-huh. acronyms or these like little object lessons i'm like oh is that is that the best we can do but one of them is like like that umbrella have you heard about this little priesthood umbrella like the umbrella protects everyone the same but uh-huh. it's the man that's holding it right. and like there's a whole bunch of problems with that and we saw this during the pandemic where single sisters or anyone without the priesthood at home could not um, bless and partake of the sacrament themselves. And so the moment the lockdown happened, I decided I am not going to partake of the sacrament at home. I can, but I'm not going to exercise the use of that privilege out of solidarity with all those who couldn't. So I never once blessed the sacrament in my own home. Wow. Because I'm like, if the if the women of this church who are single or, or whatever reason aren't doing it, I'm going to be with them on that. And uh, and I felt strongly about doing that in solidarity as a as a as a way of um, acknowledging that. Thank you. But there's just so many ways that these little cutesy things disguise the real problem. Yes. Yeah. And it took a worldwide pandemic, I think, to expose that problem here we have something that we say is the most important ordinance i think outside of baptism well, i don't know maybe anyway the the sacrament and then all of a sudden it was like actually it's not that important women you can just read the prayers and ponder and it's like wow this really exposed 
this wide gulf that's in the system. And then so, this, yeah. and then this cutesy analogy between priesthood and motherhood, I've never understood that because those no, are not understand that. <laughs> it's not even the same. It's not at all the same because not every woman can or should or does want to be a mother, right? In the same way that in theory, we could it's give the, the priesthood to, to all men independent of, of whatever. Mm-hmm. The other thing is um, women outside the church can become mothers, right? It's not something that, that can be controlled mm-hmm. by the priesthood leadership. That was like always here. my thing. There are mm-hmm. like there's, problems with it. There's just so many. I've never understood these. I think these cutesy analogies are done to, to shut down thinking and to Absolutely. shut down the discourse and say, well, look Absolutely. what you get. Like, I'm not going to name her name, but there's like a certain prominent sister in the church who says, oh, what do women get? We get everything. I'm like, <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Mm. And we have I, a whole episode about We may or that. may not have just talked about that on an episode. Yeah. <laughs> we called it what women don't get. Exactly. Eric. What women don't get in the church. That's the name of that episode. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so how do your local leaders, are, are they supportive to like say, look, yeah, we got to do better. Or do they, are they threatened by what you do locally? And here's the question of what can't I do locally? Because I can, I can change culture and change hearts and minds, but I can't change policy. Not even my bishop can, or he would not be able to ordain a woman if he wanted to, right? He would be released or he would be whatever, you know? So what do we do? Get creative. We, we've had so many correspondence from women who have bishops who've gotten creative or the bishops who have gotten creative. So it'll, it'll be something as simple as, um, okay, a woman can't right now be an executive secretary. So a bishop will call her, uh, and I'm assuming he can't even put it in the like data entry system because it won't accept a female's name, but he'll call a woman as um, like an advisor to him or something. And so she'll kind of be an executive secretary mm. and do, and like, I think to me, that's brilliant. It's like, of course, a woman should be calling other women to making appointments. If a woman is, you know, working through a repentance process and, and has to meet with a man, a bishop, then to have a woman call and make the appointments or reschedule things, or to have another woman in the building when she's behind closed doors with the bishop, like that just makes sense to me. So there are so many ways to get creative. It's not that hard. But I think speaking up is the first thing. And it sounds like you're already doing that. Uh, And the reason I feel like that's important is because there are going to have to be men interested in and invested in the outcome of this conversation in order for anything to ever change, because women are not in the rooms where it happens. Only men are. So if we don't have male allies who are in those rooms, who Mm -hmm. are looking for opportunities actively and voicing the opportunities when they see them, um, then nothing, nothing changes. Women literally have no power in this at all. So it's going to have to be male voices who pick up this, uh, Mm -hmm. this charge and run with it. And that's a power every man has to use his voice. Absolutely. And I'm not trying to hold out like I'm a perfect feminist. There's a lot that I have to learn and there's a lot that I'm going to miss. But I do want to say is that I hold myself out as accountable to women. That is, I think, where um, what I'm claiming is I want to make sure that I do the right thing, that I listen to women, that I amplify the voices of women. Um, and we also want to not leave out um, all genders as well. Right. Like trans right. folks. Right. 
gender non-binary folks um, because trans men and trans women and trans people of many genders get hit by all this mess as well around gender. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, We currently have essentially a priesthood ban on all trans people, trans women or trans men. You're right. And we and that that needs to that's a mess. So Mm. that needs to go away. But I've often to me, a lot of these things are intertwined because you can't uh, the the gender piece, the transgender identity piece and the same gender orientation piece. They're all all those oppressions are different, but they're they feed off of one another, because if women in the church can't be themselves, then I can't be myself. Right. Like uh, we won't if we had, for example, um, same gender marriage, but not women's ordination, you'd have families with no priesthood in the home. Right. There's just a whole bunch of ways that that it, that it doesn't make sense. Um, it just doesn't. I think it all comes down to biologically determined gender roles. Like just because you have this anatomy, that limits how you can identify yourself. That limits who you can marry, and that limits your roles in the church. I mean, all of that comes down to something that, to me, makes no sense. Like anatomical mm-hmm. determinism that's not chosen by any of us, right? So, um, I don't. I don't see these these roles as gender roles i just i like cinnamon rolls more than gender roles let me put it that way <laughs> that's a good joke derek <laughs> it is a good joke <laughs> james isn't laughing but it's a good joke james <laughs> i mean i'm outvoted anyway so i'm just gonna keep my mouth shut yeah okay mm. i'm curious like to what extent um men listen to you is like is your is your uh audience basically all women or like are no. the men listening the men are definitely listening and we are surprised continually by the number of men who listen they don't engage as much on our social media as women do but they do engage with us via email and um you know in in dms so we do hear from them and we do receive financial support from them and so we appreciate mm-hmm. both and i'm curious like and this is me being an outsider to the church, my, in my head, like the general women officers of the church, Relief Society, primary um, young women's, my theory is that all of them would be closet feminists, right? And trying to do what they're trying to do behind the scenes. But that's apparently generous. that's not, that, apparently that's not true because, uh. <laughs> so do, do they listen to you? Like, are they part of this conversation? Because they're in the room with the prophet. They're in the room with the apostles and you had better believe that if I were in the room with, with these men, I'd be saying something. So I don't think we have any way of knowing. We don't have any way of knowing that the top listens. I just assume they're not because why? I don't know. Part of me thinks, why would they, if they're not willing to use their privilege and speak it as well? And if that means they would get released from their calling Maybe they're willing to do. I don't know. I don't know to what extent people at the top would be willing to be a martyr for the cause by speaking things that are not allowed to be spoken out loud. I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, well, we have Jaco on record as saying some things uh, in those meetings. Yeah, but whether she said those things in the meetings or whether she was just willing to say them after the meetings, I'm not sure. I'm there is sure. there is a rumor, and I'll I'll preface this by saying it's a rumor, but I've heard it from some pretty 
Haya people that once Chaco Okazaki did that interview with Greg Prince, where she admitted that women were not involved in helping write the family proclamation at all, that after that she was no longer allowed to publish anymore with like church approved book companies or whatever. Mm. So. So the silencing of women continues. Yeah. So it's even at the highest levels, even at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. levels. So that's what I'd say about those women. They may or may not be feminists. I have no way of knowing that they may or may not be interested in our conversation or listening to it, but um, actually what that would look like on the ground in their callings and in the, their sphere of influence. I really don't, I don't have any idea. I do want to kind of shift gears a little, but not too much. Uh, to talk uh, more specifically about y'all's um, ministry. And I think people got a pretty decent handle on that a little bit, but I do want to ask a little bit more specifically. The theme of what you guys do seems to be, if I can suggest it, authenticity, particularly for women in church spaces. And uh, I want to talk a little bit and see just, that seems to be it now, and that seemed to be what it was from the beginning. But are there any goals or any ideals you guys were striving for that may have shifted since you guys have began to now? Like, have your goals changed at all since you guys have started uh, or the purpose of your ministry? Well, the, the goal was always to amplify women's voices. But something that we have changed, we're in season five of our podcast now. And this season, we have... Um, made the shift to including many women's voices, not just our voices and not just guests that we invite on the program, but um, women record messages to us and we use them to build our episodes. And that was the goal from the beginning was to amplify, you know, a variety, a spectrum of women's voices in the church, but we had to build the space first, right? Before women would step into it and be and trust to, us. to share these stories and trust us and know that there was a community ready to receive them. That took some doing. And so the goal hasn't necessarily changed, but I would say in season five, we're finally really realizing the goal in, in, kind of in a new way and a more complete way. Right. I Has think women been- feel more empowered to say things uh, not just to us in a little 90 second voicemail, but we, I've been, I'm trying to think we've gotten some uh, messages lately. A a woman said, uh, I felt brave enough to say to the young men's young women's leader, like to take out, they were having a pool party, take out the part about a modest swimsuit for girls. And, and, you know, it, it can't have this. It can't have that. She's like, so I'm proud of myself for speaking up. And I'm like, that seems like a small thing, but it's not. It's a big thing for it's people to stand thing. up to their ward and say, mm. you need to not try to control what girls are wearing. Or we'll get letters from women saying, I asked my bishop if I could hold my baby during a baby blessing. I never would have done that before I started listening to your podcast, which is interesting because I don't know that that's one that we've talked about a ton about you know holding, holding a baby during a blessing, during its baby blessing. Um, but women are just kind of taking what we're saying and they're running with it and they're like, yeah, why not just say it out loud? Why not just assume that maybe people want to help you and they want things to be different too? And so whether it's, you know, swimsuits or holding a baby during a blessing or, you know, being willing to make an appointment with your bishop and go in and say, you know what, this is really hard for me. This is where I'm struggling in the ward and, and you know, assume he can be a pastor and extend pastoral care, which 
is often difficult. I don't know. I, I'm I'm just amazed when I see the women write us saying, I did this and I'm I so it. proud of myself. It's big. Yeah. And I feel like receiving people's stories and, and offering your own stories is really ministry in its most basic form. And that's really all that we started out um, intending to do or knowing that we could accomplish was this, that we could offer our own stories, create a space and be willing to hear the experiences that women came back to us with. And that is exactly uh, what has happened, but we have found that it's been empowering for women. And one of the things that we didn't really understand going into this was how spiritually unempowered women in the church were. Women felt zero spiritual empowerment, zero. And I mean, for the most basic things, even to make decisions about, you know, how they study scriptures, how they pray, how they engage with the gospel on the most basic levels. They did not feel that they had authority over those things. And it was, it kind of, it kind of really knocked us both for a loop in the beginning. It was heartbreaking. But, But as we've looked at it, I mean, of course, if you're in a situation where you have literally always been supervised in, you know, everything around your faith life, then where would you have developed empowerment? Where would you have developed those feelings? And so somehow being able to hear other women talk about it, feeling like there is a space where you can share openly, it's creating empowerment among our listeners. And um, so really the goal has expanded, I would say. Uh, in season four, we really did lean into that theme. We really went after trying to hammer home this idea that you're in charge of you, you're in char- charge of you know your experiences uh, and your engagement with the church. You're in charge of what goes on in your own home, and you're in charge of what goes on in your own head. You're in charge of what goes on in your head, how you envision God, right? How you engage with spiritual ideas, what's important to you and what's not, what you focus on. You're in charge of all those things, and um, it took a lot of took a lot of saying that it seems like women are kind of starting to believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm a little curious, uh, just based on this new thing that you guys are doing to include uh, the voices of women further, have you guys already started brainstorming some other ideas or other ways to include women's voices or perhaps to create an even larger space where uh, women's voices can be heard? Things that you're able to share with us by chance. We had a live event in Phoenix Mm -hmm. in March. uh, That was a pretty extraordinary experience, actually. Um, We had a Friday night and a Saturday, and the Friday night was just a mix and mingle event. We had no idea what to expect for that. We didn't know if people would come, and we didn't know if it would be awkward when they did. And the answer is the women came and it was like a whole, it was like, it was a little like watching something like a high school reunion. It was like lifelong friends getting together who had never met before that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of, I guess, the space that's been created, they arrived in the space feeling like it was a safe place and bringing their whole selves and being willing to engage that way. Uh, it was really extraordinary to watch. And so we have some future live gatherings planned. So we, we do plan to go forward with that. And how yeah. was that, by the way, that, I mean, you already said it was like old friends getting together, like a high school reunion with people that had never gotten together, but was there anything else that stood out in that event about the kind of space and the power that you guys held in creating uh, that space that you noticed something that you want to 
kind of yeah. build a bridge to in the church because I know when I first met large groups of fans of uh, our show, I was like, this is how I want church to feel. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if there was something similar for you guys. Absolutely. Yes. Um, one of the most amazing things was that everyone raised their hands. Everyone raised their hands and right. wanted to talk, right? The first question gets asked by a speaker and every hand in the room goes up and the women are willing to share things of substance and questions of substance. And Cynthia and I both looked at each other and went, wait, <laughs> where are different. we? <laughs> yeah, this is different. Well, yeah. yeah. And and here's something that we didn't realize till we had our live event is... I think the common denominator, we thought the common denominator would just be women and women's issues in the church. And what ended up happening was almost every woman there had a situation where LGBTQ experiences were fueling this journey, uh, a child that has come out. We, we had a, a missionary there. She had just been off. She was queer. She'd been two off weeks. her mission like two weeks. Yeah. She told us like our podcast got her through her last six months of her mission, bless her heart. I mean, women like myself, who I have a gay daughter and she is now out of the church and my other daughter left the church because she's like, well, if they don't want my sister, they don't want me. I mean, I, I used to say to Susan, and she laughs at me when I say this, I used to say that I thought women's issues would kind of be a turning point for the church. And now I'm realizing it's LGBTQ issues. That is what we're it's through LGBTQ issues that we are going to get, I don't dare say full equality, more equality for women in the church. It's it's like what you were speaking to earlier, Derek, about that. Like how how could you have two women married, raising children together and not have the priesthood in the home? I mean, it's it it wasn't until I saw that situation, Derek, that I was like, oh my gosh, this is how it's going to happen. Because we lady folk, we will put our needs on the back burner, but we will not put our children's needs mm -hmm. on the back burner. And, and that is where, that is where the mama bear has come out in me. I mean, I've always been a little bit of a loud mouth for, for women's issues anyway, but when it comes to my daughter, Oh no, you don't. Oh no, you don't. And so that's what we're seeing with, with women's issues is that, that's why we thought we were all getting together in Phoenix. And it was, but when we heard every woman's story um, and we had some trans women who came and they felt safe there, like when else would these trans women have been able to come to a gathering with all LDS women and be a part of it and not have to explain anything. I mean, it was just gorgeous. And, and I, that and was such a gift. That was such a gift because yes. as an LDS woman, I haven't had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with trans women. Where's that going to happen for me in a church setting? That has not happened so far in my, you know, almost 60 years of church experience. And so it was such a gift that they would come to that retreat and give us all the opportunity to figure out that we're all just uh, the same people doing the same things. Um, as a Latter-day Saint woman, that was deeply meaningful to me. And I really do count it as a gift. Yeah, but that was a light bulb moment. I was like, okay, this. Well, that's why is I think LGBTQ go issues are women's issues. They are, of because course, the relationship is there, right? The of relationship course. is there. And the other questions around women, like I've often said, that if we get everything right 
for trans people in the church. We automatically get everything right for women and we automatically get everything right for cisgender LGBT folks because then you've deconstructed all that mess around gender and gender roles and gender identity and discrimination and like, right? There's no situation where we have trans women ordained and trans men ordained but not cis women. There's just no way right, that, that, right. that like if you if we fix things for trans folks, we fix things for everyone, I think, mm-hmm. on these issues. But and, do you think most members would connect those dots? I mean, I feel like there's this whole narrative that needs well, the to reason take why place I put between it, here and there. Well, the reason why I put it that way is because a lot of people will think, oh, let's fix things for gay white men. And then we'll get to the women later. Let, let's let's right. let's fix let's have gay marriage for the for the men, but not ordination for the women. Let's have I'm like, if you don't build in everything ground up, you're not going to get to that place. Like you theoretically could get things right for for gay men in the church mm-hmm. and not things right for women. And you'll never get to them. Right. I think it. you need to to to, to have a holistic approach to these issues and not leave out the trans people, not leave out the women. Like there's so many things in the gay Mormon world that focus on cisgender, gay, white, pretty men like I am. Right. I'm all those things. I'm cisgender, gay, white and pretty. And like we are the straight people of gay people, mm. um, if that makes sense. Sure, like yeah. We've got the privilege. We I think the church narrative focuses on us because we would have we would have had the perfect life except for the gay piece. So like, had I not been gay, I could have been a general authority. I could have been a superstar. I could have been it, whatever. It's just that mm-hmm. one little thing. And so I think a lot of people want to fix it for, for gay men uh, because of the heartstrings that go out to like, oh, you could have had, but why can't right. everyone have that life? Everyone should have right. that life. Not just like the gay white men, not just the straight white men, but we need to say if it's, if it's, um, tragic that i almost made it it's tragic that these all other other people didn't make it either and i think we absolutely need to be intersectional in our work towards um gender gender identity and orientation it doesn't make sense to have a partial victory but we're i think we're getting there we're, we're our culture is doing that like it's focusing so much on gay men we don't hear enough about queer women right like all of these poster boy deseret book books are by gay white men i'm like <sighs> that is like yeah that's not okay we talk about that a lot actually yeah and that's why i haven't written a book yet i don't want my interesting gay white book to be there when there needs to be other people's first just the way you said that. that so frustrated. I don't want my gay white book. To... <laughs> <laughs> so for us, so much frustration. That's a brilliant actually... insight, though. That shortcut to if, if we fix it for trans people, then well, I'm, yeah, yeah the I'm not fall I, into place. Yeah, it's not so much a shortcut chronologically, right? But it's, oh, no, but it's a shortcut <laughs> logically in the yes. sense of we need to have it all baked in, or else mm-hmm. we won't get there automatically. It's not like yeah, like trans rights don't automatically flow from gay rights the yeah. way it's culture. We see this in our culture today. Such a good point in it's our a, secular yeah. in the yeah. secular legal world. Right. Yeah. Um, James, I'm going to need you to cut this part out. But that was my daughter that walked in and 
I have to leave in a few minutes to go to Salt Lake. So I hate to say we need to wrap it up, but we need to wrap it up. Okay. That is totally fine. Totally fine. Well then, I'm going to have to save these other questions for another day, but this has been such a pleasure to be able to uh, sit down with you both. I'm glad that you both have been able to make time for us, have been able to sit down and talk with us. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Um, Just before we get off real quick, would you guys mind sharing your handles with the people and letting them know where they can find you? Yeah, you can find us at at atlastshesaidit.org. And if you go there, you can find everything else about us. You'll find where our Instagram is, our Facebook, uh, the little red telephone button you can click on to leave us a voicemail a button if you want to help donate to help us continue the project. Uh, notes for every episode that we put out, all of our links, everything that we put out is found on the mothership. At- yeah, registration for live events or for we do have an online discussion group once a month. And so the links for that are on there. Uh, we hold that on Zoom. And uh, so there are a lot of ways that women can join the conversation um, if they're interested in doing that. We'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Well then, Susan, Cynthia, of at last she said it. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, thank all the listeners as well for uh, joining us uh, for this bonus episode. Till we meet yeah. again next week. Thank you so much for this. <laughs> We're not going to see each you. other again. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for this. Every All of our listeners, go and listen to their podcast. It's, it's amazing. I haven't listened to every episode. Um, I've listened to some, but I haven't listened to them all. But every one that I've listened to, I've learned something and it's been profound. So thank you so much. Thanks friends. Thank you.